Bram Gunther is currently the New York City's Deputy Director of Forestry and Horticulture. And he now knows, although he didn't know it when he grew up, that on his old street, West 66th Street in Manhattan, that the trees that line the street are honey locusts and that there are 30,000 honey locusts in New York City. He said, it's amazing, he said, the human capacity to not notice things that you're not interested in. That's the line that's very interesting, to not notice things that you're not interested in, that the most important things, now in, in this case, the important thing is trees. Now I'm going to go on and tell you a little bit more about why the trees are important. And when something becomes important to you, you really pay very close attention to it. Actually, I hadn't. Been, I, I was really interested in the whole article because I hadn't thought about trees in New York. You know, when I grew up, there was a movie called The Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Like, it was a big deal. Like, there was one tree in the whole Brooklyn. And I lived in Brooklyn, and I didn't think of it as a you know, particularly wood, wooded area. But there are... Uh, uh, there are half a million trees in New York City. Did you know that? I know now. I now know that. Uh, no, no, no. Actually, there are five million trees if you include the parks and all the yards. Five million trees in New York. Anyway, there's going to be a citywide census of trees this summer. <laughs> Over the summer, more than a thousand volunteer tree stewards will comb the five boroughs noting the present size and condition of every silver linden, pin oak, red bud, Japanese pagoda, among other species, of which there are 70 species. The first census was conducted in 1995, which is when they found out that there are half a million street trees out of a total of five million trees in all the parks, and that the calorie pear is Manhattan's most prominent tree but its internal structure is very weak, it says, and it dies quickly. So I thought to myself, I made a little note that said, well, that's all very interesting, but what? So <laughs> then it goes on to say that the London plane tree, which is very much admired, very beautiful, that uh, uh, is in front of certain houses of uh, famous people in New York on some of the more affluent streets, so these, are, uh, these and the Norway maple uh, uh, were planted by, uh, were the direct legacy of Robert Moses. He liked them a lot. Neither is planted anymore because it turns out that both are host to the Asian long-horned beetle, which is the biggest threat to trees on the East Coast. And the, the, inter the person being interviewed here says, the commissioner of trees, says if the beetles aren't stopped, New York would become a moonscape. It would be devastated. It would be dead. So then I thought, well, it's a good metaphor to say if we don't pay attention to the causes and conditions that lead to the, the causes and conditions of, of things arising and how they impact each other and what happens, devastating things could happen. So in this case, it's important for people to pay attention to trees and who they are host to and what will happen because the health of the trees are involved. When you think about it, the health of the city is involved because we breathe because the trees breathe. We need trees around us to do that uh, elaborate oxygen carbon dioxide exchange that we do. 
We needed to keep the city air clean, needed to keep the city beautiful and lively looking. So in that case, it's a matter of a cityscape staying alive. I'd like to use that as a metaphor so you need to pay attention to the trees. We are paying attention to our experience, I'd like to suggest, in order to keep our hearts alive, in order to keep ourselves uh, present in this life in a way that allows us to do the things that the heart does when the mind is present, that allows us to respond with the natural goodwill of the alert mind or the natural compassion of the alert mind and the natural appreciation, the ability to be awed, the ability to applaud, the ability to uh, really want for this life to thrive, to thrill in the fact that life thrives in the spite of adversity and difficulty and challenge, to thrill that people thrive, to thrill about the fact that a liberated mind and freedom is possible in this very life, and a peaceful world would be possible in this very life, in this very world. Just before I leave this very article, there's one more little piece of it, where they say that 60th Street between 5th and Madison is completely barren of sooty gray waste. And uh, Bram Gunther, the commissioner, said, he said, as they walked down the street, he called out the reasons why, why that was. Subway, grate, bus stop, garage, canopy, more grates, vaults, driveway, awning, light pole, more grates, another subway. I underlined it all because I wanted to say that one of the, one of the insights that uh, really, I, I think, was, for me, seems to be so important is that there are multiple causes, that there are multiple things that converge to create every truth in our experience. And when I see that, the multiple ways in which existence, causes and conditions come together to create a future, I'm really uh, inspired to be one of the causes and conditions of the future, and also awed by the intricacy of how things are. The Buddha said that karma was one of the six imponderables, how things worked, how they came together, that they did come together in a way that continued a lawful unfolding cosmos was awesome and incomprehensible, but inspiring to me because it means that each of us makes a difference. So leaving the New Yorker and people paying attention to the trees and looking at them in New York City, here we are paying attention to our experience, coming together, paying attention to our bodies and our feelings and our minds. And I'm sure you have been noticing from the beginning that each day the, we, we even say things, expanding the uh, instructions, enlarging the instructions, continuing the instructions to include now in addition to breath, body sensations, in addition to body sensations, moods and emotions, uh, thoughts this morning. Talk a little bit tonight about really what we've been noticing, but not specifically naming as something to notice, as the feeling tone that arises with each moment of experience, the pleasantness or the unpleasantness, or the neutral, not so captivating quality of moments of experience, and how that 
figures into how we relate to each moment of experience. I want to back up a little bit and say here we are doing that because we have two things in mind, hoping for two things. We're hoping, first of all, that by meeting each moment of experience with equanimity, which is what really mindfulness is, that true mindfulness is the ability to be balanced in the recognition of what's happening. It's non-coercive. It doesn't need the moment to be different. It's alert to it. It meets it. It doesn't see it off there. Sometimes I think it's, it's possible to um, have a relationship to experience where you name it and kind of hold it at bay like it's something over there. Ah, there's a thought. There's a breath. There's a moment of anger. There's a this, there's a that. Like it's something out there. Sometimes I think uh, uh, the naming practice, which I find very useful, can actually distance people from their experience. I like to name, and I like to feel the experience as... I I like to feel what I'm naming as my experience. I tend, by the way, in my choice of names, to name my experience not by the name of the action, but what my sensation is. For instance, when I'm walking, I tend to say things like um, less pressure, less pressure, less pressure. Lightness and lightness and airiness and pressure starting and more pressure and more pressure and shifting. I tend to say to myself what my actual feeling is. It works fine for some people to name it lifting and moving in place. It's fine to do it that way. I just want to tell you that a, a way to practice or at least experiment with is to tell yourself exactly what's happening. It makes, for me, it makes me closer to my experience. It's not off there. It's what's happening. So by meeting experiences in a way that is uh, open, non-coercive, alert, really not even meeting the experience, but experiencing the experience, knowing its presence, knowing its arising, knowing its presence, knowing its passing, that by doing that, we really condition the habit of mind of being able to do that in a more ongoing basis so that the attention will not be called off by stimuli that might attract it or repel it or bore it into falling asleep, that we could stay awake and present in our lives and really present, not get pulled off, not respond. Sometimes I think of it as... uh, 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 you remember the other night when I said uh, one of my practices was saying to myself, don't pick it up, and if I've picked it up, put it down. The image that I have in mind is the image of someone throws a gauntlet down into a ring and you have to pick it up and struggle with it. And I think to myself that, the, that my experience is always throwing gauntlets and I could go for it or I could leave it alone. Sometimes I think of that old uh, 1960s slogan that, uh, that people had as a bumper sticker that said, what if they gave a war and nobody came? You know, what if, what if, an, uh, if, a, if a seduction came through the mind and it said, think me, or get upset about me, or have a fantasy about me, or don't you want to chew this over one more time? And, and, and you said to it, no thanks, you know, come back another time, um, you know. 
I'll sit this one out. You know, that you have that possibility. One of my really, you know, normally I don't like to tell such old stories, but a, an, a, an old, this is a story that happened to me on my very first retreat, which may have conditioned my enthusiasm on going for this practice. And it was such a small event that it seems in the telling almost ridiculous. But here I was in a retreat center up in Toledo, Washington, not really getting the instructions. My body was hurting me a lot. It was very hot. It was the middle of summer. It was very crowded in the room. And sitting and walking, sitting and walking, just as you were, and hanging in because I, you know, I'm, I'm very zealous, and I'm always a very good student. If someone gives me a homework, I do it. And uh, it would be too embarrassing for me not to. It's not any great um, merit of mine. It's the karma of all of my upbringing. But anyway, here I am hanging out. <laughs> And uh, so carrying on, trudging on, and it's the end of a long sitting, and uh, the bell rings, and everybody gets up to go out, and I am taking a little while to massage my knees and get up and go out. And then this little drama happens. Here's the uh, teacher sitting in front, having just rung the bell, and here the manager comes in, like Roberts and Ruby are the managers here. Manager comes in the door and goes up to the teacher and they're having a conversation. And I can see on the manager's brow is a little furrowed, which means that there's some sort of a problem happening. And you can hear from the tone of the voice, you can't make it out, but something is not good happening. And you don't know whether the vegetable truck hasn't arrived or they've <laughs> run out of toilet paper, or you know, that, that, but there's some problem in this remote retreat center. And just as I am walking by, because now I've stood up, massaged my knees, and I'm walking by, these two people talking, I hear the teacher say back to the manager as a response, in a very sweet voice, well, you know, I'm not into hassling. That was it. And I walked right by it. That was such a wisdom transmission. It was clear that the problem was going to get taken care of, whatever it was. I mean, the, 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 the manager wasn't dismissed. They went on to talk about it, and whatever it was, clearly they were going to work it out. It wasn't dismissive at all. It was just a statement. I'm not into hassling. And I thought to myself, that's a possibility. Like, I didn't know that, that that was a possibility in life, that you did not have to hassle with experience. It could just happen. And you say, okay, now what would be the wise move to make about this? In the most mundane way to describe mindfulness and clear comprehension of purpose, which is one of the gifts of mindfulness, it would be the ability to get it what's going on and the ability to make a wise decision about what would be the next move that either ended suffering or continued the ending of suffering or continued peacefulness what would be the wise move? I'm not into hassling. It's a, so one of the reasons that we are doing this practice here, quite apart, well, just in itself, moment to moment, not into hassling with the moment, whatever it is. It's not the lunch I like. It's not the amount of sitting I like. It's not the body that I like at this moment because it doesn't feel good. It's not the Dharma talk that I like. It's not the this or the that. It's not the person next to me breathing loud that I like. It's not this or that or the other thing. But I'm not into hassling with it. It's just what it is. That's what it is at this moment. Every moment in which we are practicing, surrendering to this moment with a peaceful, interested, engaged, 
friendly heart is really a moment of liberation. It's what we could do. We could say, I'm free. I don't have to hassle us. And one of the reasons that we practice is that it could become a habit. We could live like that. We could have the habit of thoughtful response rather than impulsive reaction. The second reason that we practice in this way of opening to each moment with wide awake, open-hearted acceptance and recognition is that it gives us the possibility of those insights, the insights, the direct insight of the uh, absolute uh, ephemeral quality of every moment of experience, that they pass. As James was saying this morning, you get to see not only does a breath pass, but a breath has a zillion little pieces of it that each arises and passes, that everything is arising and passing, that every aspect of our experience, everything that comes into being is disappearing in its very arising, that there is a real uh, emptiness um, to experience that really makes it clear that struggling to push things around, make them a different way from how they can be, is the cause of is a is a is a sure recipe for suffering. Really hoping to see in every way how the inability to um, the inability to stop being to that contending with experience is the cause of suffering that needing for this moment to be different is always the cause of suffering. This moment is what it is because of multitudinous, beyond recognition causes. It is what it is. The next moment can change, can be different. But this is just what it is. To resent it is to really set up suffering. And to see, in fact, over and over again, the way in which causes and conditions, causes and conditions, are continually creating the next moment of experience, to see the interconnectedness of things, to understand how actions create sequelae. Recognizing that in this very life, we can stop the habits of struggle and have instead the experience of peace that really leads, allows for those feelings of goodwill, of really open-hearted goodwill towards all beings, and open-hearted compassion for everything that's in pain, and open-hearted appreciation for those moments of wonder and awe and delight and amazingness. So many people have been giving me turkey sighting reports I'm so happy for it. I'm, I'm actually lusting a little bit because I have not seen one of those baby turkeys. But people are giving me all kinds of clues. They say, you have to listen to the sound of the mother going, deep, 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 deep. And if you hear that sound, they said, then watch the grass moving. And you can't really see those baby turkey chicks. But if you see the grass moving, then you know that you're in them, that they're in them. And then if you move closer, then you'll see the baby chicks. And so in that moment, I don't have to even see the baby chicks. I have a little hit of excitement about that there are baby chicks out there. And I think that that moment of excitement or the moment of seeing them is a moment of recognition that, that the world is renewing itself all the time. It's one of those moments that the heart picks up 
with delight. The heart gets excited. I think it's those moments of excitement and delight that really coax us into paying attention, that really remind us that the way in which we feel most alive is when we are in connection with each other, with love, with compassion, with appreciation. Those are the things that keep us alive, just as the right trees in New York will keep the air in New York alive. So I wanted to tell you for the rest of tonight's talk how the Buddha taught paying attention so that we would see those truths. You know, by the way, those same truths that uh, I just told you, the truth of impermanence, the truth of suffering, the truth of interconnectedness, when I heard them for the first time, someone gave a talk about them, and they said, these are the insights that you're supposed to have from this practice. I thought to myself, no, 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 don't tell those insights, because if you tell me what insights I'm supposed to have, and then I have them, how will I know that they're my insights? So you told me. It's like if you say, who, who did the murder before the end of the book? There's no point in reading the book because the excitement is, is all over. You know, that who doesn't know that everything passes? You know, that, you know, it's already May 26, not 2005, and yesterday we were worrying about the millennium, and, they, you know, it seems like yesterday we worried about the millennium, and that's five years now. You know, we know that time passes. Who doesn't know that everything passes? Who doesn't know that, you know, if we, if we struggle, we suffer? Well, we know that. Who doesn't know that there are causes and conditions? We know that. What would be different about an insight about them? What's the difference between knowing it and there's an, an, an insight about it? So I'd like to suggest, first of all, that my own experience is that there is a difference, that there's a way in which over and over and over again, seeing the mind caught in a not of struggle, and see when it, when it can't let go of something, and see it in a moment, as so many of you have told me in interviews, in a moment, let go of something and be free. In that moment, to realize that suffering is not, a, suffering is the tension in the mind around something, not the fact of that issue in a life. It's not the mind state, it's not the thought, it's not the memory. It's not the experience in the life. It's the heart that we bring to it. It's the mind that we bring to it that either creates suffering or doesn't. It's that lovely line in the movie Kundun where the young Dalai Lama, in reciting his Catechism of the Four Noble Truths, says the second noble truth is, um, he says it in a facile way, something like uh, uh, craving is the... Uh, uh, Craving is the cause of suffering, and his teachers say, no, no, and then he says it again, he thinks. And then he says it again, and he says, I am the cause of most of my own suffering because of the habits of my own mind. And the reason I find that so touching is uh, because in the film, I'm sure it's quite true that something like that happened. And in the film, he's shown to be a young boy, maybe seven, six, or eight. And I think to myself, how many of us as grown-ups remember that most of the cause of my suffering is the habits of my own mind. So another way of thinking about what we're doing here is we're very paying very, very close attention. So we will see those habits of mind come into play and then be noticed, see them drop away, and see the arising of peace in the mind, 
feeling of freedom, feeling of ease, over and over again. And talk about liberation. I feel like I get liberated many times a day, not once and for all. I get liberated, and then I get trapped, and then I get liberated, and then I get trapped. And so this meditation practice that we do is certainly one very wonderful tool for paying very close attention. And the instruction manual for it is the Sermon on the Foundations of Mindfulness that we are using as the template for the instructions that we give you every day as we start the day. I want to take a very, very brief moment, though, uh, before I outline that sermon for you, to tell you that it pleases me so much. I'm happy to have this practice when I say I take refuge in the Dhamma. I am very glad to have the teachings, and particularly the teachings on mindfulness, and particularly that sermon and the Metta sermon to use as texts to do my practice. And I just love to think that some people just heard the Buddha say, look, you could be free. Just drop the greed, hatred, and delusion. And they did it. Just like that. They didn't have to practice. I love those stories, that they got it so clearly. I am waiting for someone to give a Dharma talk that I will get so completely clearly into my heart that I'll be liberated once and for all. So I want to tell you, just just from the life of the Buddha, you probably all know, James told a little bit of the story of the Buddha going forth in his late 20s and doing austerity practice for a number of years and then going off and having his own experience of realizing for himself, seeing clearly, in addition to seeing clearly, presumably, his past lives and seeing clearly, most of all, the causes that lead to suffering and the possibility of the freedom from suffering. Maybe one way to say it is coming, coming away with the awareness which he taught from then till the rest of his life that incarnate life, by its very nature, is painful. It's often painful, and even when it isn't painful, its essential essence is that it's changing all the time. So it's really not possible to do other than keep accommodating to life and allowing and allowing and making space and allowing and accommodating. And that we struggle when we can't accommodate. And that we could give up struggling. That would be a way to say the, the Four Noble Truths. He said it more elegantly. But I want to tell you about, I'll read to you a little piece of his uh, meeting with five bhikkhus, five monks with whom he had been um, a fellow monk for years of his practice after his own enlightenment. Part of the story about this, by the way, is that uh, when the five of them saw him coming, walking towards them, they said to each other, let's not associate with him. That's um, uh, the monk Atama who fell away from real practice. Um, and then when they saw him, they saw that he had such a demeanor of peace and radiance coming out from him that they stopped to listen. And then he taught them. And he was they were the first five of his students. And uh, the sermon that he taught then was a sermon of setting into motion the turning of the wheel. 
So I'm going to skip the beginning part of this, and I'll read to you this little part. This way that I have discovered gives vision, knowledge, and leads to peace, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. This, this is, what is this? It's the Eightfold Noble Path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which we are all practicing here in every moment of our practice. This is the middle way that gives vision, knowledge, and leads to peace. There is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, sickness is suffering, death is suffering, sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief and despair is suffering, associating with the unpleasant is suffering, being separated from what is loved is suffering, not to get what you want is suffering. There is the noble truth of the origin of suffering. It's craving which produces the renewal of struggle, of being. It's wanting something, wanting other than what is. There is the noble truth of the secession of suffering. This is the truth that it can pass in this very life. There is the noble truth of the way leading to the secession of suffering. And then he enumerates again the Eightfold Noble Path. Then skipping a little bit, this is the part that I like. Now, while this discourse was being delivered, the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in the venerable Kandanya thus. He thought to himself, he didn't think to himself, he knew. All that is subject to arising is subject to secession. And, And then it goes on to say, and... At that point, when the wheel of law had been set rolling by the Blessed One, the earth deities cried out at Benares in the deer park at Isipatana, a perfect one, accomplished and fully enlightened, has set rolling the matchless wheel of the law, which cannot be stopped by monk or brahmin or deity or mara or divinity or anyone in the world. I love that. So here's Kandanya, who knew Everything that arises passes away. And then the Buddha exclaimed, Kandanya knows. He knows. And then the Blessed One taught and instructed the rest of the bhikkhus with the talk of the law. And as he did so, there arose in the Venerable Vapa and the Venerable Badaya the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma. All that is subject to arising is subject to secession. And they also, like Kandanya, asked to be received into the, in, into the order of the Buddha. And it happened as well with the Venerable Mahanama and the Venerable Asaji. The spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma. And they also became students, disciples of the Buddha. The Buddha taught them all, and the end of this particular piece, it says, that's what the Blessed One said, all those teachings. And the bhikkhus of the group of five were glad, and they delighted in his words. 
And while this discourse was being delivered, the hearts of all of them were liberated from taints through not clinging. And then there were six arhats, six accomplished ones in the world, the Buddha and those five. And that line, and their hearts through not clinging, were liberated from taints, may be my all-time favorite line. I love that. I think all the time that we are practicing, I think what we are practicing is in every moment giving up the, the crave, the clinging for it to be any different than what it is. Giving up the view that it should be any different, that it could be any different from what it is. From not clinging, we're liberated from taints, liberated from the habits that cause it to fall into suffering. I'm going to skip the next story because I want to get up to the four foundations. The brief of it, though, is that he then taught a merchant, Yasa, who also realized completely as he listened to the Buddha's words. And then Yasa's son, and Yasa's son's wife, and the merchant's wife. And then 50 of Yasa's friends sons of leading families heard about Yasa and they came to listen to the Buddha. They also, after they had been advised and instructed by the Blessed One, their hearts, through not clinging, were liberated from taints and then there were 61 arhats in the world. I love all those counting numbers. Then there were one, then there were six, then there were 61. So he instructed them. He said, this is the way it is. All clinging is suffering. And they got it, and they stopped. I have a fantasy about the sutta on the foundations of mindfulness. This is completely my fantasy. As far as I know, there is no commentary that says that. But I am imagining the Buddha going from place to place, as it's described in the texts and teaching five people and 50 people and this many people and that many people, and each of them the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma arises in their hearts through not clinging or liberated from taints all over the place, and some people's aren't. And my fantasy is that at some point the Buddha said, some people don't get it just like that. I tell them, and they don't get it. It's so clear to me, you know, isn't it clear to you? They don't get it. They, those same old habits, they keep on coming back. So I have to figure out a more remedial way, like, <laughs> like people who learn to read and they have to come early in the morning for the bluebird group. It's a remedial. So I think, this is my fantasy, that the Four Foundations of Mindfulness was written for those people who didn't get it just by hearing about it. Say, so, okay, you didn't hear about it? Here's a way to do this. Okay. Listen to the beginning of this. Thus I have heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru County. And he addressed the bhikkhus there thus. And he said, bhikkhus, monks, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. What are the four? Here, bhikkhus. A bhikkhu abides contemplating the body as a body ardent, fully aware, and mindful. Having put away covetousness, 
and greed for the world. Having quieted the mind, having let the world be the world, which is what we're all doing here. We've put down the world, we're contemplating the body, contemplating feelings as feelings, minds as mind, mind objects as mind objects. I love the word ardent, too. Ardent, you hardly read the word ardent or hear it except in um, love poetry. I want you so badly. People really uh, uh, wanting someone else to uh, be there for them, wanting something, someone badly usually, are ardent. And here are bhikkhus, ardent. Here we are, ardent. One of the reasons I think that I was so moved to continue practice, in addition to the remark about hassling, and <clears throat> on that first retreat, was that it was so hot, so crowded, so uncomfortable, and a room full of more than 100 people, as you are, almost 100 people, showing up every morning so early, bell rings, people come in. I have to figure they hurt like I do. They're hot as I am. They're, at least some of them, as confused as I am. And we are all sitting there hour after hour after hour. It was the most ardent practice I'd ever seen. I had such a sense of nobility about being part of that group. Ardent is great. So all those four ways, I thought uh, another way to say it, if you were talking about remedial mindfulness, it'd be that the Buddha said, look, when he taught, can't you see how in your whole life, every time you struggle, you suffer? Every time personal greed or anger or indifference causes you to fall asleep, you fall out of contact with your heart that can love and, and offer offer support and consolation and compassion and appreciation, you fall out of your real true self. And people said, yeah, and they were there. This is for, this is the remedial course and it's in four ways. It says you can't see it in the great picture of your life. Do it this way, do it as a meditator. First of all, let's consider the body. And he gives instructions, the very same instructions that we have given you. Sit down. Here a monk gone to the forest or the root of a tree or an empty hut. So you have to figure that this, I figure this is the root of a tree or my, my hut. This is the hut that accommodates my body at this part of my life. These are your huts. This is your roots of trees. Puts her body erect and establishes mindfulness in herself. Ever mindful, breathing in, breathing out. Breathing in long, she understands, I'm breathing in long. Breathing in out, she understands, I'm breathing out long. Breathing in short, she understands, I breathe in short. Breathing out short, she understands, I breathe out short. He trains thus, I shall, ex I shall breathe in, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe out, experiencing the whole body. He trains thus, I shall breathe in, calming the body, and breathe out, calming the body. This is really what we're doing here, all of us. We are bringing attention to the body. 
We're sitting in an erect way. We're watching the breath. We've given you all different kinds of instructions for being with the breath, for using the breath in ways that will calm the body and steady the body, console the mind, really. Instructions on the four postures. The practitioner maintains mindfulness sitting and walking as we have, standing as many of you have chosen to do in the, in the sitting times, which I'm very happy to see. I think it's a very wise, um, it's a very wise move rather than struggling with flopping all over the place. Nobody flops all over the place. If they stand up, it wakes up the body. And it's a perfectly acceptable way to be paying attention. Because it's not about being a sitter or a walker. It's about being awake. And the sitting and the walking and the standing and the moving about are the four postures which, we're, which really make up the whole of what we can possibly be in. When I think about it, I think sometimes it's a poetic way of saying all the time. Because when you think about it, sitting and standing and lying down and moving about is about it for what we do. Unless you wanted to put in kneeling or leaning or something like that. But, <laughs> but really, in the reasonable ways, that means all the time. There aren't any other postures, really. It's a way of saying all the time, paying attention. Skipping along to um, because skipping along to the mornings that we have as as we have expanded the instructions, we've started with the breath, and all of us have said the breath is a heuristic device. We're using it because it works, not because it's more special than any other experience that you could pay attention to. It's special in one particular way. It's special because everybody can do it because everybody's breathing all the time. It's also special because because if you don't have breathing problems, it has a certain rhythmicity about it that actually is quite tranquilizing. It's a, a very, uh, uh, it's a calming uh, um, object in and out and in and out. Like being at the seashore and hearing waves come in and out and in and out. There's something about that predictable rhythm that if you can let your attention rest in it for a while, calms down all the mental processes, calms down your body. You probably notice the ways in which your hands get warm as your body calms down, that your energy flows are different. People have been telling me all different kinds of ways that they feel the energy in their body more. And we've been also including all the other kinds of ways that we experience our physicality. The breath isn't... uh, one particular thing. After all, the breath is sensations all in the body. Actually, the whole body feels the sensations, what we call the in-breath and the out-breath of these multitude, zillions of little sensations all over the body. So maybe we pay attention in a certain area for a while, another area for another while. We also began to pay attention to other prominent sensations in the body, Often the most prominent sensations in the body that come to people's attention in sitting are experiences of some heightened um, heightened sensations that, that are some type of stress from the body being in a still position or in a posi- particular position that it is. Gives the mind an opportunity to practice accommodating to challenge. 
You might say another way of saying the whole, the whole instructions for this practice is accommodate the challenge. Keep on accommodating the challenge. For, remember the other day I said I'd gotten a letter from my friend who said, I'm having trouble adjusting to my new circumstance. And we said we could make a whole life from the beginning to the end is adjusting to a new circumstance from minute to minute. So as you sit and there's a discomfort in the body, you adjust to it and you adjust to it and you adjust to it as long as you can. And you accommodate it without moving to see that the mind can accommodate it without moving. And then when the mind really is stressed, you move the body. It's a wise discernment. So we've included the body in, in that way in sensations. And we included the sensations in the body from the very beginning with the walking practice and with the qigong practice. And I know many of you are doing yoga practice. And there are all ways of really bringing, resting the attention in the sensations of the body moment to moment, not to categorize what's happening, whether there's buzzing or tingling or pulling or throbbing, but really to see that it's all always changing, that it's all changing, that one thing leads to another, that if I lift my foot up, then it's going to have to come down, that the putting of the foot down happens because the raising of the foot happened, because there was an intention in the mind to lift the foot, then the foot touching the ground again happens. Because of this, that. It's really not to see about step, step, step. We know about step, step. We've been stepping all lives. It's to know about one thing leads to another. That when you find yourself in front of the water fountain, I remember this was one way that I suddenly realized, oh, I found myself in front of a water fountain in the middle of a walking period. I thought, what happened? And in the middle of paying attention, what I had not paid attention to, as I was walking, lifting, whatever feeling, is the arising of thirst, the desire to quench the thirst, the recognition, the remembrance that there was a water fountain around the corner, the thought of drinking the water. Meantime, I'm thinking I'm here, and the next minute I'm at the water fountain. You see see how one moment leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. It's not a dire, you know, it's not a dire outcome that I was at the water fountain taking a drink. But I begin to see how we get moved around in our life one moment to the next, propelled by desire, pushed around by desire, really. When you see that, then you can at least become an intentional participant in that moving around and decide when you're going to move around, when it's skillful to move around, pushed by desire, and when it's not so skillful. Paying attention to the body, and and this morning particularly, James included in such a lovely way the, the, uh, the, the paying attention to the... Uh, climate of the mind in terms of the moods that come and go, um, moods, the hindrances that Sally talked about two nights ago, the arising of the hindrances, the passing away of the hindrances, thoughts coming and going, all contact, the, the, the experience of the climate of the mind, what's there. And it was quite clear, it's quite clear in the, in the sermon that uh, the point of noticing what's present in the mind is not that one thing is better than another thing to have present. It's just to know what is present and what's the response to it. Can I hold that in a balanced and open, non-coercive, accepting awareness? That's this, it's that. It's, It's certainly easier and more pleasant 
to hold mind filled with peace and joy in the mind than mind filled with anger and ill will. That's a much more burning feeling. But if I pay attention to it and I see and experience the burning feeling of mind filled, filled with ill will and the wonderful feeling of mind filled with goodwill, it's probably likely to condition less, um, less time spent in clinging to stories of ill will. Probably less t- uh, one of those things that deconditions the response of resentment and anger, irritation, the direct experience of what a mind of ill will feels like and what a mind of goodwill feels like. We have not really talked, except indirectly, about noticing the feeling tone of every moment of experience. That really is the second foundation of mindfulness, the Buddha postulating, and I think it's probably your experience as well, that there aren't any, that every moment arises with a certain feeling tone of valence. It's pleasant or it's unpleasant. I don't notice so much neutral feelings, but that's, I mean, that's, uh, that's part of the, the, the postulate that uh, when things are not so uh, dramatic, we tend not to notice them and we tend to fall asleep about them and that the possibility is that the mind falls into a torpor and a little bit of confusion. And when the, when the experience of the moment is pleasant, there's the possibility, rather than just staying open to it, in a balanced appreciation, wow, this is pleasant, this is really pleasant, this is lovely, that the mind moves into some sort of um, strategizing about how to have it stay, which sets up tension in the mind, to those kind of suffering. Or when the moment is unpleasant, this is, uh, the neck hurts or the knee hurts, or there's a painful memory of something, rather than the mind remaining in a relaxed way and saying, wow, this is unpleasant. This is really unpleasant. Wish it wasn't here. Everything that arises passes away. That's a balanced way and a wise way to be with things rather than how can I get rid of this, what did I do to have it start, it's my fault, it's back again, all the complications that increase the suffering in the mind. So really, in in their order, the meditator pays attention to physical sensations, pays attention to feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Not to make everything into oatmeal. It's not supposed to be that an accomplished, wise person has, has let go of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, that things are pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. They just are. That uh, to notice them and to notice the tendency to be drawn towards pleasant or push away from unpleasant and fall asleep from neutral is the part at which we have some possibility of staying alert and overriding that tendency, staying awake and saying it's just what it is. It's pleasant. That's great. It's unpleasant. It'll pass. It's just what it is. The fourth of the four foundations of mindfulness that I'm hopeful that one of my colleagues will do a talk about because I've just looked at the clock and seen that I'm out of time (laughs) is in some way a summary for me of the three others. It's, uh, It's the way, it for me, I think of it most 
as the way in a, a compilation of the way in which wisdom arises. It's not only that uh, the, there are all these various um, climates of the mind that can be there, and or experiences of the mind that can be there, or experiences of the physical body, but that they change. The way in which mind and body interact with each other, that uh, hindrances arise in, in response to challenge and can disappear in response to skillful action. Really in that fourth foundation of mindfulness is the direct awareness of the, uh, of the truths of the Four Noble Truths in one's own experience, really encountering the fact that clinging is, is suffering. It's really a compilation of the ways that understandings come together. And seeing that and say, wow, look at that. I really got that. I really understand that. Maybe, maybe I, as I say that to myself, I think I'm a little bit um, laughing in my heart when I think about it, that any of those 61 people who uh, their uh, hearts through not clinging were liberated from taints, I thought to myself, what particular line was it that they heard <laughs> that suddenly they got it? And I thought to myself, you know, I, I, it's, part of, it's part of my own nature to imagine that that could happen for me and for you. It doesn't matter if it happens once and for all that we are liberated. Well, it matters, but whether or not we will practice for the rest of our lives because it's the wisest and skillful and sweetest and most happy way to be. You know, sometimes when we think about uh, the Buddha's teachings on suffering and liberation from suffering, it's nice to remember that he was called the happy one as one of his names. It's really the path of happiness and liberation. So I wish for all of us, may it be so, that the spotless, immaculate vision of Dhamma arises for us and our hearts through not clinging will be liberated from taints. And we'll sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock on May 26, 2005. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.